Harvard Divinity School. Climate Justice as Racial Justice Student Panel, April 11th, 2023. Okay, everyone. Hello. Good afternoon. Nice to see so many beautiful faces. Um, my name is Aaliyah Collins. I'm a third year MDiv here at HDS. Um, also part of the HDS Climate Change Week. I'm a part of the planning committee. Um, and it's so nice to see you all here. This is the Climate Justice as Racial Justice panel discussion. And I'm so excited to have these presenters here. Um, alongside to talk about some very important issues when it comes to climate justice. Um, so when it comes to climate change, some have a very narrow view. We often see the fight for change focused in improving the ability for affluent, wealthier, predominantly white communities to become more sustainable, clean, aesthetically pleasing, and safe. Yet communities of color whom are disproportionately impacted by climate change pay the ultimate price, being locked out of resources and becoming scapegoats for environmental degradation. Oil companies, fossil fuel producers, industrial powerhouses, and capital greed leave communities of color displaced and vulnerable to the wrath of climate change. Their indigenous knowledge are myths and their voices are legitimate. Therefore, seeing racial justice through the lens of climate justice is critical and inevitable. This panel discussion will explore the inextricable link between climate justice and racial justice by centering the lived experience of those most impacted. It will deconstruct European-centered ideas and images of climate justice to redefine buzzwords like sustainability, green energy, and climate ad adaptation through the voices of communities of color. We are happy to have with us faculty and students who will help us understand climate justice and racial justice and the ways that this takes shapes within communities on the margins. Through scholarship, activism, and art, these presenters will tackle important issues of today as it concerns climate change and communities of color. I myself approached this conversation as the founder and CEO of the Eco Healing Project, which sheds light on the impact of climate disasters on historically black colleges and universities, HBCUs. HBCUs are only 3% of the country's colleges and universities, yet produce 20% of all African-American graduates. Two-thirds of students at HBCUs are low income. This makes the recovery from climate disasters devastating. The Eco Healing Project will help HBCUs build gardens to use gardening as a form of spiritual care to navigate recovery. I'm excited to be in conversation with these student thought leaders who are at the forefront of climate justice and truly embody what it means when we say climate justice is racial justice. So without further ado, I would like to introduce a beloved faculty member, Professor Myra Rivera, who will provide our opening presentation. Myra Rivera. <laughs> Myra Rivera is the Andrew W. Mellon Professor of Religion and Latinx Studies at Harvard University. She's the president of the American Academy of Religion. Rivera works at the intersections between continental philosophy of religion, literature, and the theories of coloniality, race, and gender, with particular attention to Caribbean post-colonial thought. Her research explores the relationship between discursive and material dimensions in shaping human embodiment and social material ecologies. 
Her most, most recent book, Poetics of the Flesh, analyzes theological, philosophical, and political descriptions of flesh as metaphors for understanding how social discourses materialize in human bodies. Her book, The Touch of Trans Transcendence, A Post-Colonial Theology of God, explores the relationship between models of divine otherness and ideas about inner human difference. She is also the co-editor with Stephen Moore of Planetary Love's Vivic and Postcolonial Theology and with Catherine Keller and Michael Nosner of Postcolonial Theology's Divinity and Empire. Rivera is currently working on a project that explores the relationships between coloniality and climate change through Caribbean thought. Please welcome Professor Myra Rivera. So thank you, Ana del Castillo, for the initial uh, contact uh, about this conference and everybody who's been involved in conceiving and organizing it. I know it's a lot of work, um, but it's, a, it's an amazing topic, and I'm glad that you are uh, putting your energy into such an important discussion. So it might be odd. Yeah, <laughs> it might be odd to say that a hurricane left its marks in my scholarship, but it actually did. Like many Puerto Rican scholars, I perceived Hurricane Maria as a rupture in time, and it stirred for me worries about the future of Puerto Rico, the island that claims me and the future of the Caribbean. Yet, this rupture could only be understood in relation to the past, as an event in the unceremoniously archived procession of our catastrophes, to use Edouard Glissant's words. 500 years of colonial history in which Puerto Rico has been a laboratory of economic and social experiments have materialized in soil and sea, as well as in our flesh. The environmental history of the Caribbean is inseparable from colonial desires for economic gains and for the power that wealth would grant. As Edward Said observed, quote, to think about distant places, to colonize them, to populate or depopulate them, all this occurs on about or because of land. The actual geographical possession of land is what empire in the final analysis is all about." End quote. And Christianity, of course, was implicated in this process. Who can forget the image of Pope Alexander VI granting the killings of Castile and Leon and their descendants all dominions, cities, camps, places, and villages, and all rights and jurisdictions, and all islands and mainlands found and to be found. Still, taking possession of land is not simply a matter of occupying space. It entailed new ways of understanding and documenting the world, as well as a transformation of soil water, entire ecosystems, and human lives. Colonialism creates zones of vulnerability that make climate change all the more catastrophic. 
This is both all too evident and worth repeating. But reframing our ways of knowing the world requires also moving beyond generalizations. If colonialism extricated nature from culture, Glissant argues, we must now attempt to reestablish those links. To do so, he invited readers to return to the point of entanglement, which I interpret as returning to those moments in which we lost a sense of belonging to the earth and replaced it with flat ideas of territory and of the human. The point of entanglement I returned to was the 16th century Caribbean. And I'll share some stories. The Tainos or Arawak, the native peoples of the Caribbean, were the first to experience the sudden catastrophe brought about by the Spanish conquest of America. They were enslaved to extract gold. And as the Arawak population was decimated, the Spaniards brought, brought African captives to provide enslaved labor for gold and agriculture. Cataclysm would now fall on them and their descendants. This history of genocide is entangled with environmental devastation. Imagine the environmental impact of all the things that colonialism brought to the islands. European men with their myths and guns, chickpeas, citrus trees, sugarcane, weeds, rats, and viruses, cattle and swine trampling land used to the light touch of birds and iguanas. Imagine all the products necessary to sustain the lives of voracious conquering men. Then the extraction from the islands of gold and pineapples and wood and indigenous people. Cultivation of sugarcane entailed deforestation on a massive scale and the displacement of people from land used for sustenance agriculture. Forests were promptly cleared to plant cane, for timber to build processing facilities, for fuel for boiling the raw cane juice. The impact was visible in the islands, but as the scale of production grew, the plantation assemblage extended globally. Growers imported captives, captives from Africans for slave labor, wheat from New Orleans and codfish from Newfoundland. They brought cotton for clothing. Some islands imported timber from Louisiana and from New England. Colonialism destroyed the material conditions that had sustained communal life. It also broke the social material ties between peoples and their islands, violently tearing them away from the soil. This uprooting gave way to forms of dispossession and displacement that continue to this date. 
It also gave way to forms of knowledge that uproot people from their social material environments. This history shaped the Caribbean, materially, religiously, and culturally. But it is not just a local history. Colonialism, environmental devastation, and genocide reshaped local ecologies around the world, in the Canary Islands and the Banda Islands, in New Amsterdam and New Spain, each in distinct ways that married their own narratives. And that as the process moved from one place to another, it wove the fabric of racial capitalism. These processes would have lasting effects in the material environment, and they would change our ways of understanding the world. I am suggesting that we need to return to such points of entanglement to understand what is happening, what has been happening to our environment, and to begin transforming our ways of engaging the world. Tracking the linked paths of ecology, extraction, dispossession, and forced relocation requires methods that can incorporate different temporal and spatial scales, including the long histories of extractivism, as well as attending to the communities that have suffered them. Histories of colonial and racial devastation teach us that environmental futures are linked to our pasts. We may describe them as ancestral catastrophes, as Elizabeth Povinelli suggests. Time and again, communities that experience the onslaught of colonialism and racial capitalism have warned of the environmental effects of such practices. Many of their voices are lost from the archives, but many others are still calling on us. These voices, past and present, call us to active listening. And I hope they prompt us all to support works that seek to amplify the voices muffled by our grand discourses. Listening for and retelling the stories of ancestral catastrophes is to take responsibility for the stories we tell and those we quickly forget. In times of climate change, it is easy to turn to readily available homogenizing visions of the world at the expense of the particularity of places. It is tempting to rush past the long histories of catastrophes to focus on present threats. But we need a more capacious sense of collectivity that can only emerge when we are willing to honor our stories and tell the truth about the injustices that have shaped both environmental devastation and responses to it. We need a world made of our many worlds. Thank you.
Thank you, Professor Rivera. Now we'll welcome our first presenter, Nathan Samaya. Awesome. Thank you, Aaliyah. And thank you, Anna, too, for putting this week together. I know this is a lot of work, so I really appreciate y'all doing this. And for all the other folks who um, had a hand in putting this whole week together, it's fantastic. Perfect. Awesome, and thank you, Dr. Rivera, for that opening word as well. And to my fellow panelists who I'll be doing this uh, panel with today. So uh, to start, my presentation today is titled American Nostalgia and the Conservation of Guahan, which in English people say Guam. And I wanted to preface this presentation by making it known that what I'm presenting is not new information that the content of this presentation would not be made possible if it wasn't for the grassroots activists in Oceania and Guahan in this specific case. And as these matters have very, very immediate real world consequences for people on the daily, I came to the conclusion that my job as someone located in the academy and within the colonial metropole is to leverage voices of those who are not shown in mainstream American media mainstream American media. So with that, I want to begin with this image on the title page. Now pictured here are the shelves built inside the newly constructed Guam Cultural Repository, a joint project between the University of Guam and the Guam Museum of the Department of Chamorro Affairs, officially opened in October 2022. Now the mission of the Guam Cultural Repository is to provide long-term curatorial services for the material remains recovered in the island of Guam. Now, where are some of these material remains, quote, coming from? Mostly from places like Taragi Beach, located in the village of Jigo, which harbors historical significance from World War II and is a safe haven for migratory, migratory birds, excuse me, sea turtles, and other endangered species, as Sarah Marr reports in their project, Fanogi Guahan. But Taragi Beach has looked like this after it was marked as a site for OBOD, or Open Burning, Open Detonation, which is a US military practice where munition waste is thrown into a pit in the sand, which gasoline then gets poured onto it and blown up. This releases chemical toxins directly into the air and water, including lead, uranium, PFAS, and more. Now, another site for material remains is called Latexin. Now, Latexin, also known as Retidian, is home to millennium-old native limestone jungles, indigenous medicinal plants and herbs, and the home to more than eight endangered animal species and the location of the largest freshwater aquifer in Guam that is used by 90% of the island, but is now the site for new live firing range training complex to test machine guns, grenades, and other US military technologies that will lead to the destruction of the Texan. And lastly, Magua. Magua is one of the oldest ancestral villages in Guam home to ancient Lighty stones and burial sites that literally have ancestral remains in them, but has now been bulldozed for a new US Marine base. 
And you know, it's hard to find some of these photos because these aren't the first thing that Google typically likes to show and tell. But you know what other photos don't pop up immediately? Clearly outlined United States Department of Defense massive military destruction plans. The ones shown here are built over all the sacred sites in Guahan that I just showed earlier. And it gets even worse. Back to the Guam Cultural Conservatory where all these quote cultural artifacts, i.e. ancestral remains are being shown, or excuse me, are being stored. The project was contracted at over $10 million. And of course, it was the US Department of Defense that funded it. But before any major federal project is executed, it must conduct an environmental assessment to make sure it doesn't pose harm to the environment as outlined by the National Environmental Policy Act. And in this case, it was the University of Guam who conducted the environmental assessment. And in order for the assessment to get approved, it must be overviewed by a government agency. And of course, the agency that said that the test was conducted sufficiently was also the, the United States Department of Defense. So to wrap this up, if I have to be quite honest, I don't necessarily think that a five-minute academic presentation is going to stop the DOD from bombing up the Pacific and throwing the remains in government-ran facilities. But what I do think is that we can walk away from this and be more aware that museums, conservations, and refuges are the product of very violent histories of colonialism. Imperialism, ecological disaster, slavery, occupation, and theft and that we should reconsider the ways in which we glorify and romanticize these types of institutions. And the last thing that I'll say is that in our contemporary moment, domestic and international, quote, conservation projects spearheaded and funded by the US empire signifies a much larger imperial project at play. And lastly, if you're interested in following along with the issues going on in Guahan that the US empire is currently bombing, um, I invite you to follow these uh, social media accounts titled Protei La Texan, which is a social movement in Guam trying to protect uh, the cultural resources. So thank you. All right. Um, thank you. So again, my name is Tracy Robertson Carter, and I just I'm so thankful to RPL and Steph and Aaliyah and uh, and all that put this together for inviting me to be here today. Um, I love talking about the arts, and particularly when we're talking about um, the ways that arts um, can help highlight and um, uh, I'm going to say elevate um, issues, and in this case, um, in the case of the environment. So if you just bear with me, and Steph, I'm going to go like two seconds over because I have to go back and forth. But um, what I'm going to focus on today is one of the nonprofits that I lead called Artists in Residence in Everglades. So I want you to hear, you're going to hear from two artists because um, that's how, um, you know, that's how I choose to uh, use my efforts and resources. Um, around elevating artists to be able to speak on the um, issues of our time. Uh, let me, uh, so this is an artist named Cunha Raleigh. Yeah, I just need to. So um, one of, that artist that you just saw is named Cunha Raleigh, and he's one of the artists and artists in residence in Everglades for 2023. Uh, this is a young man. Uh, we could just pull up any of the climate justice ones at the top. 
great. Thank you so much. Thank you. Um, and uh, he's one of our artists that uh, lives in Florida. He's about 35 years old. He's lived in Florida all of his life and only lived about an hour away from the national parks, um, from the Everglades National Park, and had never gone. And uh, what you'll learn um, how I'm using climate justice as racial justice is um, trying to create abundant spaces of belonging for artists, BIPOC artists on um, the Everglades National Park and um, in other park units around the country. So um, that was just a taste of what it looks like when you put a BIPOC artist who's never been to the park into the park and, and uh, you know that beautiful original piece that he created. This is another gentleman, I think uh, since we're in a climate justice conversation, some of you may have heard of him, maybe not. Um, his name is David Lammy. Um, he is a parliamentarian in, uh, in uh, British Parliament. And I just wanted you to hear a few words um, from him that guide the reason why we talk about climate justice as um, you can't have uh, uh, racial equality without um, dealing with environmental and climate justice. So I'm at the minute mark, so I'm gonna kind of go through this kind of quickly because I want you to hear the artist. So what I'm doing is a case study using Aerie. And what we did with Aerie is that Aerie is located in the Everglades National Park. Um, the Everglades National Park is at the tip of Florida, uh, close to the Keys. And what we do is we have an artist residency, we do programming, and uh, have a gallery in the park. But what we didn't have were black people and brown people who were part of the residency for the past 20 years. So about a year ago, um, about two years ago, I took it upon myself with another uh, one of my co-chairs to reimagine Aerie. So do that radical imagination that we do here at Divinity School every day. And what that looked like was simply bringing on some national, a new national advisory. Um, there's one of our dear national advisory in the room today, the newest Guggenheim fellow, my friend Christina Seely, as well as 20 others that we had. Um, we increased the residency stipend, so it was less of something that was a privilege to do, but something that was for others to be part of. And we ended up getting over 500 applications. What that ended up looking like is that we had a prompt that asked the artist not to create it, <laughs> not to create, uh, not to answer the question, but to come up with that theme, you know, that prompt of what, what it looks like to make the outdoors a place of belonging. Um, this is just a picture of our creative director and, and a fellow from last year who, again, I'm pulling up all these folks and I asked them because these are all incredibly intelligent folks. This young man's out of Cornell, but he also lived only an hour of the park for about uh, 20 of his 25 years, for 24 years of his life, and he'd never gone. And he went from being one of our artists to now being an artistic um, uh, creative director of Aerie and someone that is using the environment in his work um, on a much larger scale. Um, to end, uh, you know, we had a huge uh, event during Art Basel, but I did want to just share that, um, I know I'm at time, but I just wanted to share that uh, how important it was. So the reason you're using climate justice, racial justice, and what I'm so proud to be here today is that the way that I use it is using the arts, using the lens of the artist, and particularly putting people of color into the environment and what can come from that. And what comes from that is where you have the National Park Service who's looking to take area into um, that's a personal pride that they're looking to take area into many different park units, but particularly that it's coming from the fact that they're also, they're tackling structural racism in the park. They're tackling what it looks like to create spaces of belonging in the park. And we're just one of the NGOs who's doing it. And from what you heard earlier, it's so important that we have the people who are most impacted by the environment having a voice in the environment. So later, since I'm at time, I'll make sure to share more later, but thank you. Sorry about that. <laughs> Thank you.
Hi, thank you all for being here today. Thank you um, for the invitation from Religion and Public Life. And thank you too much, so much to Steph and Aliyah for the opportunity to be on the panel with these incredible thinkers. And um, I, I will add, Aliyah, as someone from Nashville, thank you for all the environmental justice work you're doing there. I really appreciate it. Um, today, I'd like to talk about Tennessee's New South, Marquita Bradshaw and her call for environmental justice. Now. As the polls closed on the evening of August 7th, 2020, Marquita Bradshaw etched her names in the annals of Tennessee po political history. She became the first African-American woman to win a statewide race, winning the race of the Democratic U.S. Senate primary. And what makes her campaign so extraordinary is not only these historic markers, but the issue she ran on. She ran on environmental justice. And I had the opportunity to interview Mrs. Bradshaw, and she told me that she sees environmental racism as a modern-day lynching. Now, as we heard before, environmental racism refers to how the government and corporations have intentionally put harmful and deadly toxins in communities of color and low-income communities. So here, Bradshaw contextualizes environmental racism within the long line of historical injustices, specifically here, the racial violence and terror of lynching. And it's important to note that Bradshaw is not equating environmental racism to, to the public violence and intimidation of lynching. That took place in a different era, but what she is calling our attention to is how both environmental racism and lynching enact state-sanctioned violence upon communities of color. And Bradshaw did not come to this environmental justice platform based on political pundits telling her that's what you need to run on in Tennessee. I don't think any political pundit would tell you that. <laughs> Instead, she came to this platform based on personal experience. She grew up in South Memphis, where an Army Defense Depot, an old EPA Superfund site, was emitting toxins into the soil where she lived. It tragically killed her grandmother and other community members. And in response, she and her community organized. And she felt called in 2019 to say that, I know this happened in South Memphis, but I'm not going to let it happen throughout Tennessee. So she launched her 2020 historic Senate campaign based on these environmental justice principles, reclaiming the, reclaiming the term New South as a progressive rallying cry in the state. And she, she understands that this stretches throughout the whole state of Tennessee, saying that we have farmers who are experiencing flooding and losing land and are being phased out of what's going on when it comes to climate. And posting this powerful picture of her, her meeting with farmers in Tennessee and meeting with people in South Memphis because, as she told me, my campaign is based on environmental justice principles that those who are closest to the pain should have a voice in shaping the policies to make sure that their communities are healthy and safe. And, and we see her here, you know, campaigning in 2020 in the midst of COVID. She's putting on a mask because she understands that environmental justice is, is linked more to pollution. It's linked to this pandemic that is adversely affecting communities of color. It is linked to economic equity in Tennessee to make sure that farmers and all working class Tennesseans get a fair wage, which is why she says, I'm reclaiming this term of a new South. 
a term that was used by redeemers in the era of post-reconstruction to justify Jim Crow. She's saying this is now a call for environmental justice, and I'm meeting with people in South Memphis, I'm meeting with people who are closest to the pain, and I'm meeting with farmers throughout my campaign in 2020. And she does this with the spiritual for formation and foundation of faith. During our interview, she told me, faith is ingrained in everything I do. And when I approach environmental justice, she told me, I see Jesus as a community organizer. You know, get, getting a group of people together, using narratives, using stories to inform her platform. And after she unfortunately lost the general campaign that November, she founded an organization called Sewing Justice in Memphis, drawing on the popular biblical illusion of we reap what we sow. So th this biblical illusion in in invites us to explore new democratic possibilities and environmental justice and state campaigns, and, and also alerts us to, to, to the pressing urgency of environmental justice because we will reap what we are sowing today. So let us heed Bradshaw's call for New South in Tennessee and sow justice, so that's what we will reap in the future. Thank you very much. Okay, hello everybody. Thank you for being here, and thank you all for your beautiful presentations. Um, so my presentation is called Artful Resistance, Songwriting as Myth and Archive. And I'm gonna be talking about creativity through the lens of songwriting, but it can really apply to like any creative art. Um, so I came up with this framework for thinking about climate and racial justice and art. And um, the first point is myth-making and myths. So songs are stories. And um, I don't know what that is. Um, Dr. Sean Taylor, who's a folklore scholar said, our mythic and folk lives are literal armor and weapons that we can use against white supremacy. So thinking about the role of of understanding ourselves and our world mythically, and how that can give a, how that can be a tool for resisting um, various forms of oppression, and then how does engaging myth making when we tell our stories shift our sense of power and perspective facing climate catastrophe? Then the second point is songs as archives. So what can we share through music and through song, and how can songs be containers for our pain and our longing and our grief? And then also just thinking that like as things are changing and there, there will be places that we'll lose and won't be able to recover, how do we keep them alive and how can a song keep places alive for us? Um, and then there's the medicine of the medium. So what is unique about music and songs that, that allow us to feel and know and understand things differently? Um, and then how, like what forms of knowledge like sensory, embodied, shared knowledge? Um, and then lastly, that these are practices, songwriting and all creative practices are practices of vitality and they're life-giving and they connect us with, with life, with each other, with, with our world. And especially as people of color, telling our stories and telling the stories of our people and the relationships that we have with the land um, is like, is just vital. Um, so I'm gonna share some examples. Some examples. Um, this is a song that I wrote that I'm thinking about as mythic and it's like, basically through the lens of a coyote, but me thinking about the loss of the land that I grew up with. Um, I'm gonna play a clip. This is voice note, like whatever. Yeah, just don't have time for that. So. Once I saw her around the block, heading straight down the sidewalk, a suburban nightmare, but I don't care. She never really did give me a scare. 
She told me that since the houses went up and the bulldozers drove up on the bluff, she's been hungry, sure enough. She's got nothing to feed her pups. The signs went up, danger, danger. Creature like that is a stranger, stranger. My tears flow because I know there's nowhere left for her to go. They burned her grass and took her home. Nowhere left for her to roam. Cool. Um, okay, so that's that I was thinking of mythically. I'll just move on to the next. I want to make sure we have time. Um, so this is what I was thinking of as archive. So this is a song I wrote about a very special lake that is really small and in definite danger of like possibly not existing in the future. And um, I didn't write this song thinking of it as an archive, but now that I have it, I'm like, oh, this, the lake is like in this song. And like, even if the lake doesn't exist anymore, I'll always have this song and I can share this song. So I'm just gonna play it. This is the last thing I'm gonna do and just invite you all to like close your eyes if you feel comfortable um, and see if it takes you somewhere. If not, you can also just think about a place that, um, that you love. Our presenters another round of applause. So now we're gonna start our Q&A. Um, just a few minutes for Q&A. So if you have a question you would like to ask our presenters. Um, okay, I already see hands going up. Um, I wanna start us off with my question, I guess, first. Um, thank you all. I think, so my question is around um, what are some of the common misconceptions that you all have experienced in your work? Because I hear a lot of people talking about different things. Tracy, when you were talking about some of the artists, 
um, who live so close to the park yet never have been there. I worked in Chicago last summer on the south side, but I also lived right off Lake Michigan, and I could go there and just chill there and relax there. And then I learned that there are kids, black kids in Chicago, who have never experienced that, and it was just disturbing. But so some of the some of the common misconceptions about climate inequality and climate activism, because a lot of times people don't think about art and activism. So what are some of the common yeah like mis perceptions that you have experienced about your work that people don't understand or put to put together? So hi, I can I, thank you for that question. Um, I definitely uh, I definitely think it starts with the fact that people what I is uh, what I see is that people don't uh, believe that BIPOC people have uh, um, want to be engaged in the environment. Um, that they don't care, and most of it, what I didn't, um, yes, because I, I was losing time, but what I didn't get to is that they didn't go to the park because they didn't know how to get to the park. They didn't feel that they belonged in that environment. It wasn't something that um, was, um, as you would say, creating a space of belonging, or, um, and that's the same for our friends um, in the Miccosukee of Florida that have been preserving the area, you know, um, before then uh, when the National Park Service was created um, to protect the land, but it also took it away from the people who were of the land. So I think that that would be the biggest um, misconception um, is that you don't have, that people of color aren't interested in the environment. And uh, just to say, you know, these days there's so many groups that are doing the work to make sure that um, we're seen um, and that we're engaged and being part of lobbies and other things, um, as well as uh, groups of just getting people into the park. So that would be mine. Oh, please. Thank you, Tracy. I think for me, um, I also want to locate where the misconception comes from. I think that's a big part of it. And I think as I talk to a lot of climate activists, one of the misconceptions emerges from this kind of white liberal regime of climate change discourse saying that it's carbon emissions that's like the leading cause of climate change. When really a lot of folks understand it to be capitalism and military occupation in the Pacific as what's causing a devastating climate change impact in the Pacific. So both what the misconception is and where that misconception is coming from, I think is really important. Um, it's okay. Um, I think, yeah, when I was thinking about the presentation I just did, I was like, are people going to see the connection with racial justice? And I feel like part of it is like just people of color being allowed to like claim our relationship with land and the love we have for, for land and like, the misconception being that 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 isn't just like natural to us that we don't have that or that like loving the earth is this like white people thing which has already been like deconstructed by a million people but but I think I even saw that coming up when thinking about what I was going to say that like it's like what is the connection obvious but it's yeah it's it's everywhere so Uh, thank you for that question. The, the biggest misconception that I face is that environmental justice is some radical departure from Tennessee politics and activism, when in reality I think it's a radical application of Tennessee, Tennessee's history and Tennessee's culture. I mean, we, we hear in Bradshaw's campaign how, how she refers to um, anti-lynching and renowned journalist Ida B. Wells in Memphis w w with the quotes about lynching. And during our interview, she talked about how she sees 
a parallel legacy between the anti-lynching work and her own work that alarms Tennessee and the South and the nation to the casualties of environmental racism. I mean, the, the statewide newspaper in Tennessee, the Tennessean, called Bradshaw a political novice after she won, which was, which was absurd given that she'd been organizing for environmental justice for fair wages in Memphis for over two decades now. So I think we're trying to battle those misconceptions in this work. You know, I guess my one of, one of the areas I, I want to like to emphasize a lot is that environmental devastation, I prefer to use environmental devastation to include toxicity and, and longer processes. Um, so I, I like to repeat that environmental devastation has a very long history. Um, and and, and to, to try to recover that history is part of what, of the work we have to do, not only to address the, the immediate consequences of that long history, but also to even change our ways of thinking. Um, as I was saying before, it, it really requires a deep uh, restructuring of our ways of thinking and our ways of being in the world. I'll start because I'm not going to end on a good note, so hopefully someone else does. Because <laughs> I'm very cynical. Um, and, you know, I'm a pastor. So, like, this kind of, this kind of um, move to always have to point towards something joyful or, like, hopeful is something that doesn't really sit with me, but hopefully someone else kind of answered this question a little different. What You know, I was talking to some other pastors, and we were like, yo, we are in, like, ministry is um, hospice care because everything is dying. And I think when I find hope in something, I recognize that where we're at right now, like I just don't think we fully comprehended the kind of um, existential condition that we're in right now um, and the devastating conditions that we're in right now. And when we are able to address that and grieve through that, I think we can probably make a turn. But personally, for me as a cynical person, I don't really find any hope beyond this, but hopefully someone else has a better answer than that. I'm over, I keep giving y'all the mic. My bad. I mean, I may not be cynical, but I, I, I but I, 
and I don't think you're cynical, but I guess so. Um, I, I'm so glad that you brought this up because um, in all seriousness, I, I, I actually do relate very much to what you're saying because it's not to have everything end on some happy note, but I know that I'm gonna say so personally, it's the reason why I'm involved in so many things. Like, uh, what do they say? Those who can't, you know, I, I, um, I might not be the artist, but I'm definitely gonna elevate and create that abundance for the artist to help us look through that lens. It seems sometimes, just in my world, it seems sometimes a way that people can engage um, with grief, with, with, uh, with joy, um, with uh, a myriad of emotions. What I found though with um, I'm getting more involved in this work is that I'm from the islands. I mean, my family's from the islands, so I do feel very connected but when I'm in America, it's something that there's so many barriers in terms of you got to have a car to get here. Or you got, you know, it's not something that is directly um, in front of you. So um, all I can tell you is that uh, I know that it's like the long view. You know, it's something that um, I will say my father's gone a long time now, but I played golf for many years. And he, I have a very good long game, if anyone wants to know. I, can, I, can, I have a great long game. And he said it's very important to understand that uh, a lot of stuff you learn on the golf course, he said you'll use in life. But I'm saying that because everything, reparative justice, you know, all of this is honestly the long view. It's, it's why I'm back at school at such an advanced age. And, um, and I wish I had uh, something joyful to tell you about grief, but... I've been, I've grieved, <laughs> I'm grieving over something. And uh, it's it's a process and I do use nature. I do use waking up to that sunset every morning, um, getting out into this crisp air and um, trying to connect um, you know, with nature as much as we can. But it is why I'm involved in things like Earth University, Airy, um, any, anything I can do to be um, engaged in any way that I can be engaged with um, helping to save the environment with friends who are doing work in the environment. Uh, that's the way I, I get through presentations like we've had today. Yeah, thank you for your question, because I also think about that a lot. And just some initial thoughts I'm having are like, where if we allow the grief to be there and hold it or, or whatever, like where might it take us? And like, what will happen if we just kind of like, yeah, there's a lot of grief for like very good reasons that, and like we can't avoid that. And like what happens if we lean into that, um, especially in as a community or a collective, like what might change for us all? And then lastly, I think um, just something like my personal way of grappling with that question is just like to um, really like feel that no matter what happens, I will love that like we've been here and that we are here, which like maybe doesn't resonate with people, but that's how like I came to that conclusion for myself. And so I just want to share that. Yeah. I can just um, share a verse um, from a St. Lucian poet, Derek Walcott, that I returned to as a kind of a mantra. And he said that the fate of the Caribbean poet was to fall in love with the world in spite of history. Um, and so, so I, I tried to keep that tension, right? To keep hope in the present from, you know, rather than, than project it to the future. I have another question. <laughs> 
Um, this is more personal. What brought you personally to climate justice? Did someone else like to start? Yeah. Say something. Um, it's a winding path, I guess. My, my first job was as an environmental engineer. Um, long time ago. Um, but I think that the where I began with the with the question of of Hurricane Maria and and the increased sense of the immediacy of its threat to this little island that I love um, just illuminated for me that that there were deep um, methodological lim limits with the methods that I normally use in my research, right? So many of our methods uh, focus so much on human histories um, in, in detachment from, from its ecologies. Um, so I think it, it's been that kind of slow process of seeing that approach that is not so much an awakening to the reality because it was always part of my um, of my professional life, um, but but more kind of that intense affective commitment to to try to think differently. Uh, thank you for the question. I, I used to work as a housing navigator in Nashville for people experiencing homelessness. And, and what I noticed is that affordable housing is inextricably tied to pollution and climate. How much space do we have? Where are, you know, if we can get housing, is that housing even in a safe and healthy community? So I became very interested in environmental justice in Tennessee. Um, and to partly answer the question from before, Marquita Bradshaw's campaign took place during 2020. That was, yeah, I was you know, losing hope um, in, in the midst of COVID and, and a racial reckoning. And then I saw Marquita Bradshaw's campaign online because she had to do all of her, she can do a lot of events in person because of COVID. And, and that really gave me hope to see a public figure in Tennessee running on this platform um, and, and repurposing the, the term New South for environmental justice. So I had the honor of, of um, getting to interview her and, and others in Memphis involved in this work. Um, I think I haven't necessarily conceived of my work as being connected to climate justice, um, which is interesting. But I, when I saw the call for the panel and I was like interested in applying and I was like, oh, wait, my songs like I'm, I've been writing about that. I just never thought of it that way. It's just I've been writing about the things I care about and that's just there. So I guess like for me, it's maybe just the the places I grew up loving and the the ocean and the desert, and I just wrote about that in, in Terry Tempest Williams' class. But um, the the places I want to protect and I care about and I think about. Oh, yeah, you should go last year. Um, so um, I'm gonna I'm going to go with just it's all it's very personal because my experiences are as a young person. I spent a lot of time in Jamaica. And so, um, and I know Jamaica from what you'd call cockpit country, which is um, the, you know, the mountains where it's more of a cooler climate and uh, 
Um, and what we call organic now is just what I grew up with because you had to catch water on the roof, you had to, you know, raise your chickens and that's what you had for dinner, you know, like all of that type of stuff. And then to be an American, I'm an African American, I'm born in America, um, but to be a first generation American and just see that I'm, um, I get no joy at all about being the only one. So I snowboard and I'm the only one, like I, I get no joy out of that. No joy being, I mentioned golf, there's no joy that comes out of being the only one. Um, so I tend to, you know, the climate justice piece came from the fact that I do enjoy the environment. I engage with the environment. I, 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 love, um, I love being out in the environment and there's lots of other things. I'm talking art and it might sound fluffy and light or maybe, maybe it doesn't, but there's a lot of statistical reasons of why I'm doing this as well. Um, but the art piece, I just just have to keep repeating, it feels like it's something that then people can then experience maybe the environment, or experience these issues through a different, through a different lens, through the different lens of people that you haven't seen out there. And now, you know, um, uh, in you know, uh, there are statistics with the National Park around uh, their um, um, how they're, uh, excuse me, now that they're dealing with issues around tackling structural racism, which then means that people are in the environment, which then means that you're closer to what's, you know, what's what's impacting you most and engaging with conservation and other things. I mean, the numbers aren't up significantly, but they are moving up because we're addressing it now. So the reason that I got involved is just that, I'm gonna be honest with you, it's just, I, I didn't, it was getting tiring being the only one. This is a very big country and it's very strange when you're like, why aren't other people of color engaged in these things? Um, some of it could be other reasons, but there are ways that we can do and help to get people engaged. So that's how that's how I got there. Thank you, Tracy. I have two answers. I'm gonna make it really quick. The first one is also very personal. Uh, my family left Guam for a very because of a very violent incident that happened that I can't really say publicly, but it was linked to military occupation in 1997. So that's the first thing. The second thing, I want to save myself from that cynicism comment because I'm not advocating for all of us to be cynics. But what I will say is there's this quote that my friends and I talk about all the time because we ask this kind of existential question of why are we doing this? Um, and I want to say it's from Anthony Penn. I don't remember who, who said it, but I was trying to look it up. I couldn't find it. They said, um, we don't fight because we think we can win. We fight because we can. Yeah. And was that was that Anthony Penn who said that? Someone said yeah. Okay. Oh, okay. That I may not know why I continue to do this because I'm so cynical, but I do it because I can do it. Yeah. And that's it. Fill in the blank with whatever you want to say, but I'm gonna do this because I can do it. <laughs> I don't know. I keep lifting up the mic like this. Like I ain't at a pulpit right now. Let me put this down. <laughs> For real. Thank y'all. This was great. <laughs> Well, I want to thank everyone for coming out to this panel discussion. I hope that you found it useful. I hope you learned something. I hope you found that it was a good dialogue about some really important issues. I hope you, it helps you think differently about climate justice. And I'm so grateful that we were having this conversation here at HDS. So I am going to ask Anna to come and talk about the rest of the week for our, our Climate Justice Week. Um, we have a lot of things planned, and I hope that you'll come out to it. Um, but again, I want to thank everyone for coming. Um, and yeah, kind of. Thank you so much, Aaliyah. And a round of applause to our amazing student organizer, Aaliyah, for putting this together. Can you give a big round of applause?
and also to the wonderful Diversity, Inclusion, and Belonging Office, and especially your leadership staff. Thank you so much. Um, we have witnessed, we have been activated, and I think that this panel really shows the well of deep wisdom that is within this school. So if you feel activated today, I encourage you to connect to some of the speakers and just stories that we've heard and that this leaves the room that we've been in. So I wanna shout out some of the awesome programming we have for the rest of the week. Um, tonight we have our Climate Common Read Fire Salon, which will be from 6.30 to 7.30 right out there in the HDS Terrace, all are invited. Tomorrow we have our stories are cages, stories are wings, so what stories do we tell about climate? That will be from 6.30 to 7.30 in Memorial Church, and we'll feature our very own Terry Tempest-Williams, who's here today, and a wonderful author, Rebecca Solnit. Then Thursday, we have our art and activism workshop from 4 to 5.30 in the Braun Room. It's gonna have an amazing artist, Angelo Baca. Please come through. And then Thursday night, we are going to have a beautiful, joyous time at our Climate Justice Open Mic Night from 6.30 to 8. Again, all are invited. And then Friday, we have two panel conversations, one from 10 to 11, Religious Literacy and Climate Change, and then our keynote conversation, examining the religious and spiritual implications of climate change from 11.30 to 12.30. So we have a lot of exciting things coming up, and we encourage you all to come, and thank you so much. Sponsor, Religion and Public Life. Copyright 2023, President and Fellows of Harvard College.